Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Today, I, David Rothkopf, your host, am in New York City. Corey Shockey is scooted all the way from California to <laughs> London, England, where she is right now, from formerly from London, England, but currently in Washington, D.C., in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, is Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and I think with him is Rosa Brooks yes. of Georgetown University. Uh, how are you guys? So good. So My good. My did not burn down, and the fires are under control. That's very good. We're all very pleased about that. Ed, do you have any advice for Corey in London? Uh, I would savor next year's vintage of, of singed cabsav from, from her part of the world. I'm told it's going to be one third of the output. It's going to be very, very smoky. <laughs> so you laugh, but... Uh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not eight, actually eight mocking. Nine years ago, there were wildfires that really did affect the taste of the wine that year. You really can't taste the smoke in it. No, I was saying that because I've been reading about that. They are talking about how the, the, the grapes that haven't been harvested are going to taste different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't being facetious. I, I know I usually am, so it's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> no, no, I think making fun of a tragedy that laid waste <laughs> to 270,000 acres of California is hilarious. Yeah, how do you think the vintage in Raqqa is going to turn out this year? <laughs> Oily. Okay, wait Slick, a minute. for my taste. For all of the things that that do reach the sharp end of your mockery, David, I feel like suddenly... You're the one throwing the proprietary card? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I didn't say I wasn't hypocritical. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, please. Grant me that. I've lived in Washington long enough to be a hypocrite. <laughs> Do you know I, I am part of the all-time most awesome expert fact-finding team I am part of a group of people from all over the world who, who trot around the globe to investigate hypocrisy in international relations. We go on little hypocrisy fact-finding trips. I <laughs> uh, kid you not. We, of course, we fly business class and we stay only at the finest hotels because it is essential. If you're going to be hypocritical, you really just need to, you know, go you all the way. The <laughs> you need to walk right. the walk. You have to fly Etihad to be specific. <laughs> now, just, wait a second. Is this a real thing? I, this is a real thing, and um, and I would be going to Turkey in January to check out hypocrisy in Turkey, except the Turks have regrettably canceled all non-immigrant visas, so I may be forced to investigate Turkish hypocrisy at a Turkish restaurant here in D.C., um, but then we're going to go investigate hypocrisy in Iran. We're investigating hypocrisy in Russia and Greece. It's very hard work. Yeah. But, but wait a second. You're actually le – you leave Washington to find hypocrisy. Yes. Like well, <laughs> look, we, we, we take a global view of things. 
I feel like that falls in the category of work that I can do perfectly well in my PJs at home. I don't even need to leave home for it. Yeah, but you can't get to the restaurants in your PJs. Excellent. Do you have to practice hypocrisy at the same time as you study it? Well, it really comes naturally. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Speaking of hypocrisy, let's talk a little bit about this gold star controversy Ah. in the United States right now. Uh, Because it seems to be there's lots of hypocrisy, and it starts really up at the top where the president invokes the gold star chief of staff in order to help him attack the gold star mother who doesn't seem to be grateful for the phone call that she got late, even as other people didn't get phone calls or letters, or in fact, even though he had said he'd reached out to them, he didn't apparently even have their addresses at the time he said that. And this all seems like so much trivia, but maybe it's not, is it, Corey? No, I don't think it's trivia for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason is that the president started this disgraceful politicization of the grieving of a family who had lost their soldier um, and then tried to make it sound as though he were uniquely virtuous um, in the process. <laughs> Nobody so else has ever this, called these people. Uh, yeah, exactly right. So so that's the second foul. First is politicization. Second is, uh, let's see, what, what was the name of the boat that Gary Hart sailed on? Uh, oh right! Come on, um, da- come on, David. With all those <laughs> starlets sitting on his lap, yeah. Right, uh, rumor, right, right. something rumor. Um. Any, anyway, uh, the the point is that that by saying no other president ever did this, he's just baiting journalists to prove him wrong, and then when so that's political stupidity. Monkey business. The Monkey business. False. The third, yes, thank you, monkey business. The third fault wait, wait, what is, is then um, pushing out the White House chief of staff, who is a gold star father, um, uh, to politicize, to shame everyone into silence about it. The fourth major um, infraction in civil-military relations is... Uh, Chief of Staff Kelly only calling on journalists who know a Gold Star family. That is, using that moral high ground to prevent other journalists from the practice of their profession. Um, Fifth major infraction is the White House spokesperson saying, nobody has the right to question these Marine generals because he is both a veteran, not a general, he is retired from active duty. And second, um, it is, of course, all of our patriotic duty, as the great Phil Clay pointed out, to question our military and hold them accountable. And as the great Lauren uh, DeJong Shulman pointed out in her terrific Atlantic piece, um, that, that it is also our job to question the political leadership and to make clear that they are putting American soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, and coast guardsmen, and intelligence professionals, life in harm's way for justifiable reason for us all. The accountability function of all of this is what the White House has been hiding from in every single stage of that, and it's disgraceful, 
in addition to which it is increasing the grief of someone who has suffered a tragic loss on behalf of us all. Well, that leaves plenty of room for you to add to, right, Rosa? <laughs> <laughs> that was a fairly exhaustive summation, it's true. But no, I, I was glad Corey wasn't counting on her fingers because I was afraid she was going to run out of fingers um, uh, in, in uh, enumerating the various forms of disgustingness that we've witnessed uh, on this in the last uh, week. But the only thing I would add if we're I, – I do think one of the things that's – kind of gross to me about all of this is the continued sacralization of the military and military sacrifice as a, a sort of form of sacrifice that should be outside of politics. And Corey and I have talked about this and I, I, I think we might disagree a little bit. I'm not sure. But but I actually thought um, the the widow, the recipient of the not as special as it might have seemed phone call and not as sensitive as it might have been phone call you know, was was also trading on this, right? That that uh, I have a special status because my husband was killed uh, serving his country in the military, and that is very very sad. And she is entitled to all of our compassion and concern. Uh, but I I don't think that being related to someone who was in the military or or someone who has been killed in military service, it elevates any any of us to the status of sages who must be listened to and must not be offended and so forth um and i find it i find it troubling that we're so ready the left as much as the right is so ready to take that as a starting point that oh my god we must not ever you know that because she says so as the widow that she has this unique status uh, I don't like that very much either. I mean, I've, I and and let me just say, you know, I'm perfectly willing to excuse pretty much anything said by someone in the throes of immediate grief. Trump has no such excuse, but but I but I do think that you know the the underlying problems here is we we treat the military as sacred. We treat people associated with it as having some special occult wisdom which they don't have. They're ordinary human beings. They don't have any occult wisdom. We shouldn't treat them that way. And I and I particularly hate your constant, and we've seen this phrase repeated over and over, the phrase, you know, the military, oh, this should be outside of politics. I think, are you kidding me? You know, that the military, it is an instrument of our nation's political ends. And what could be more political, not partisan, but political, than the decisions we make about war and peace and whose lives we're going to risk and who we're going to kill and when we're going to use force and when we're going to spend money on using force, that, that we can't afford to have the military sit outside of politics in that particular sense. We need to very much treat it as one of the most profound, profoundly important political issues of our time and no claim of affiliation to the military or military sacrifices should exempt anyone from facing all the hard questions about, did that make sense? Does that make sense? Why are we doing this? Should we do this, et cetera? 
Yeah, I think Rosa's um, global hypocrisy talk could start with how we treat and sacralize the military here. And uh, when I say we, I should be treading carefully because I'm, gre- <laughs> I'm a green card holder at, at the moment, not a, not a citizen. Um, ah, behave. Yes. Um, the uh, from from still sort of fairly foreign ears, the term gold star. You know, it, there there is a whole sort of different lexicon of how you treat the military and see them. And I think um, sort of elevate them. Uh, so I'm, I'm agreeing, with Rosa, largely with what you say, that um, it is a substitute um, for treating them well, um, you know, as as veterans in many cases, and um, for having a, a, a military that represents the nation. And so I think there is an element of inbuilt hypocrisy every time. Um, people say thank you for your service and, and let them onto planes first before anyone before anyone else. That is very unique to America, very post unique to for post Vietnam America. Um, that still, after all these years, strikes me. But in terms of the issue at hand, the damage to General Kelly to, to me is the sort of big takeaway from 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 this situation. Clearly, there was a conversation between General Kelly and and, and Trump um, before he spoke out about this, in which Kelly mentioned that Obama hadn't called him um, when he'd lost his son in Afghanistan um, seven years ago. And Trump had generalized that into Obama didn't call anybody, and probably Bush didn't. And um, then Kelly felt some kind of responsibility for Trump's mistake, as everybody is sort of made to feel in Trump's White House. And did this very ill-advised thing of coming out and taking and taking on, if not the mother of, um, if not the wife of the of the fallen soldier, the uh, the, the the account of the conversation from um, Frederica Wilson. So I think he's a damaged. He's the sort of damaged goods here. Trump can't damage himself anymore. I mean, there's no there's no surprise factor with Trump, but Kelly. Um, along with Mattis, these are the two people who are holding it together, and it is it is significant that Kelly is damaged. Well, I think you know, let's be clear. I don't. I mean, Kelly is damaged. He's not in the same tier with Mattis anymore. I mean, Kelly, you know, in fact, brought himself down a lot with his behavior on immigration, which was disgraceful. Um, but he has, you know, reasserted himself as chief of staff, and they have asserted to or Im, 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 implied that he is a special status because he is both a general and a gold star father. Um, and uh, he, I think, has, you know, in the past week invalidated all of that. Corey, you you wanted to say something uh, uh, when when Ed had started talking. Yeah, I wanted to say that I actually don't disagree with Rosa, that American civil military relations definitely suffer from too much deference and not enough engagement. Um, the, dis- the only distinction I would make is that uh, I think the right approach to take on the part of political leaders towards Gold Star families who who are angry and judgmental and making political commentary. Um, we actually have a terrific example of the right way to do that. And that's yes. the way President Bush yeah, yeah. restrained himself from ever responding to Cindy Sheehan, right? Because Gold Star families have earned the right to feel whatever they feel and think whatever they think without 
um, us capitalizing in any direction on their grief. Well, and, and, and so Bush, I, and Bush I, in I fact, there was Bush another said, situation where he he let he let a uh, the I can't remember it was the mother or the wife of a, a service member who had been killed in Iraq. He let her scream at him for several minutes, and he just stood there and he took it, and that was the right thing to do. You know, he I mean he he treated her as he quite appropriately as someone for whom grief was the foremost emotion and. You know, you don't argue. You just say, yeah, you're you're grieving and that's it. Exactly. That's exactly right. It does not mean that whatever their views are, are merit greater deference than any other citizen's views. But it's they do create a political problem for political leaders. Um, and in general, I think that veterans ought to be treated you know, if you're worried about veterans' influence on an issue, you ought to treat them as regular political actors, not as uh, not blurring the line between active duty and veterans. But with Gold Star families, I think the restraint of respecting whatever their views are and not pulling them into the fray for any reason is the right way to respect their sacrifice. Um, I, I, th I think actually, didn't, didn't Bush defend the right of Cindy Sheehan to say what she was saying? I, I you know, I mean, I, I don't think he, uh, he, he not only did not argue against her, I think he specifically said that he understood why she was saying what she was saying. But, you know, I think this is a tradition, uh, in, in American politics while, perhaps uneven administration to administration, in which every administration has behaved better than this administration has. But, you know, if I may circle back to Corey and then to the rest of you, I, you know, Corey, one of the things I know you think a lot about is civil uh, military relations. And I just wonder, what do you think of the current period in civil military relations with all these generals in the government, with this debate about Gold Star, with, you know, the world security hinging potentially on generals um, uh, or senior government officials who used to be generals, uh, not necessarily going along with their boss. Um, it seems like as challenging a period in civil military relations in some respects as any we've seen recently. So I do not think civil-military relations in general are at a particularly high state of tension. Um, but uh, so the research that we did for the book Warriors and Citizens that Rosa contributed a terrific chapter to um, shows that— And that was co-edited with our current Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. Shows that the American— And Ed and I were— both avid readers left out. Yeah, uninvited. avid readers. <laughs> <laughs> Demonstrating the excellence of editorial selection. Very painful. It's very hurtful. <laughs> um, so the research, so uh, the baseline data set for the book we conducted one of the largest surveys of American public attitudes about military issues that had been done since 1998. Um, and 
it comes very clearly out of that data that uh, that what has happened, especially over the last 20 years, is that public trust and confidence in the military as an institution uh, has remained stable and high. What has plummeted is public trust and confidence in every other institution, and in particular, in elected political leaders. So this enormous gap between public trust in the military and distrust of elected political leaders gives politicians every incentive in the world to to hide behind the uniforms. And we see that increasingly. It's important to remember that President Obama nominated just as many retired military officers to cabinet positions as President Trump did. It's not uniquely a Trump phenomenon, although there there is a kind of weird, I was a bad student at a military reform school, and therefore I love ordering generals around kind of vibe to President Trump's um, uh, fetish about veterans. Um, but but it is increasingly a fact of American political life. The public didn't dis, didn't uh, wasn't upset in the way Rosa and I were upset about uh, retired general officers speaking at political rallies. Moreover, it's not that big of an anomaly in American political life, right? Um, Leonard Wood, the chief of staff of the army. Uh, campaigned in uniform while on active duty in 1920 or 21. Um, uh, you know, Douglas MacArthur, recently fired by Truman, uh, spoke at the Republican National Committee convention in 1952. Uh, and even in the halcyon days of the all-volunteer force after 1973, it, it was less than 10 years before retired Marine Corps Commandant P.X. Kelly was endorsing Ronald Reagan or uh, retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, 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 I can't remember his name at the moment, a Navy admiral, was protecting candidate Bill Clinton from Admiral draft Crow, charges. I think, wasn't it? Thank you, yeah. Admiral Bill Crow. Um, so this is, uh, those of us who care about civil-military relations would love to see politicians have the restraint not to collect uh, lists of endorsements from military people, not to... Um, uh, not to treat them any different, but I think it is inevitable that this problem is going to grow because the political incentives for suits to associate themselves with the virtue the public imputes to the military is going to continue for as long as the public continues to impute virtue to the military. Now, it may well be the case that Mike Flynn and John Kelly and others are going to serve as chastening reminders to the American public that that the people who are good at fighting our wars may not necessarily be people you want to defer to on immigration policy or allowing the Russians to run roughshod over American domestic politics. Well, but, but it really it's brings up another public re it's going to take that public reaction before it changes. Well, it, it raises another issue um, implicit in your last sentence there where you say the people who are good at fighting our wars. 
But, you know, since Ronald Reagan began the process of re-embracing the military post-Vietnam uh, and elevated it to, you know, what Ed was referring to and, and all of us have been talking about a little bit, which is to a, a sort of kind of um, almost liturgical tone where criticism of the military is sacrilege. We also find ourselves in a situation where we, we can't admit when the military isn't doing a very good job. Um, and I, Rosa, you've written about this, I, I, I know. And, you know, it's, it seems, you know, particularly interesting in the context of the current debate where there are a thousand soldiers in Niger and the, 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 major, the, the minority leader in the Senate said he, did, he wasn't even aware of that. And, and we're not even really clear what those soldiers were doing in Niger. And Trump has been sort of loosening rules of engagement, giving more latitude to generals. And, and, and you know, to be perfectly honest, the record of the United States military over the course of the past 25 years is, shall we say, mixed. Um, and so, you know, it's not just, you know, should generals or former military people be running for office and how do they use their military status but 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 there is something deeper about this notion that the words and thoughts of of military leaders are sacrosanct that leads to you know bad militaries right rosa well, it certainly can. I think people can start believing their own hype, um, and that's a pretty dangerous thing for anybody. I mean, in general, I, I share Corey's uh, feeling that we're not experiencing a crisis of civil-military relations or a civilian control crisis. Um, you know, if I had to make a list of the top 20 things that frighten me most about the current political moment, I'm not sure that would be on my list, um, you know, we, um, and, and, which is partly just to say that that I – and I've said this before that I think that we, we do tend – just as we criticize the American public for sort of sacralizing the military, I think that we tend to get kind of fetishistic about – civilian control of the military in a very in a very formalistic way um, that has nothing to do with substance and that has everything to do with, oh, you know, you can't have people with background X in position Y. And you say, well, how come? And well, just because, you know, that we're not very good at articulating what the underlying reasons for that are, you know, and and, you know, my own take is that it's sort of it's only a problem if it's a problem. And uh, some sometimes it's not actually a problem. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, I, I mean, so to be fair to military leaders looking at the last 25 years, I think it would be it would be accurate to say that while on the one hand, uh, they haven't won a lot of wars um, with the exception of the first Gulf War. We don't have a lot of clear cut victories. But then on the other hand, um, the nation more generally and the military is very much included in this as a, as a part of that nation, not as something separate from it. We don't know what we're trying to accomplish. Any, we don't know what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, the nature of conflict in many ways has been has been changing. It's not particularly clear what we're trying to accomplish or or, or that anybody knows how you accomplish uh, your achieve your political objectives in this much messier kind of conflict that we're increasingly facing. So while I do not think that our military leaders have particularly covered themselves with glory, it's also not that obvious to me that there's a whole lot of glory available in the kinds of conflicts that we are we are asking our military to take on today. Uh, and and you know I, I think that the 
we have military personnel at this moment in almost every country on earth. It's not challenging to – it's not surprising to say, oh, did you know we have a 1,000 troops in Niger? Well, you know, find me a country where we, we, we don't have troops because there are a lot fewer of those countries than countries where we do have troops. And most of this has occurred under the radar screen because the American public does not care basically. Uh, and the Senate doesn't care and the, you know, the Congress doesn't care very much because if they cared, they would actually ask more questions than they do. You know, is that the or fault of – an authorization or, for the or, use of military or force. Pa right. Or pass, a, pass an authorization for the use of military force that bears some relationship to the actual conflicts uh, and tasks that we're asking the military to undertake, which we have not done. Um, so, you know, is that a civil military relations problem? Maybe you could characterize it that way. I, I would tend to characterize it as a you know, you know, much broader forms of political dysfunction uh, and democratic collapse uh, in which the civil military component is only a very small part. It wouldn't – if we were in – you made a reference earlier which I, resonated with me, which is – the United States is kind of weird on this stuff, <laughs> and it's not just how people are allowed to board airplanes early, although that's a little bit weird, um, because you know why military and not first responders, or why military and not teachers, or why military and not you know clergy, or etc. But 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 in the UK, if you were thinking of sending ten people to Niger, there'd probably be some wonderful question time debate, right? I mean, there'd be you know, some heated discussion about this. This stuff is a little bit more uh, open. And and I, I, I think some of that has to do with the fact that people in the United States don't dare say we shouldn't go there, we shouldn't do this, because it makes them seem weak and unpatriotic. What's your view? Yeah, I mean, in, in the UK, sort of given constraints nowadays, that might be the maximum sort of overseas deployment, uh, 10 people in, in Niger. Um, so, you know, th there isn't a comparable situation to, to the United States. It's the only country with a global footprint. It's the only country um, with a presence on every continent and the only country capable of still fighting two or two and a half wars um, ar around the world, however, however we define war. Uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, quite sure whether that means as much as it used to. Um, no, the 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 way to look at um, this is we're in a crisis of democracy, and you look at uh, you know the institutions that are, that are mad. It's not just the military; um, it's the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's it's unelected institutions that are insulated from the pathologies of our electorates nowadays and our societies nowadays. And, uh, you know, it's uh, this week or probably in the next few days, some stage, um, Donald Trump will announce the next chairman of uh, or chairperson of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and we will be observing very closely whether um, civilian politician um, independent central banker relations remain intact from that appointment and what it is that the quid pro quo might have been if he does replace Janet Yellen in terms of you know keeping interest rates low um, in the run-up to his re-election. So I think we're in a crisis of democracy and I'm, I wouldn't dare to um, sort of compete with the, the very sort of felicitous words of, of Corey, Rosa, and your infelicitous words, David. Um, uh, on, thank you. Uh, on, on the, thank you. I feel such warmth. <laughs> <laughs> Just flowing out from the Ministry of Snark. 
Um, yeah. But I would, you know, I, I, I would say that it's, I would, I would agree very strongly that this reflects more on the collapse of trust in, in our elected officials um, than it does necessarily in a massive vote of confidence uh, in the record of, of, of the Pentagon, etc. Well, I don't want to just leave this hanging here. Corey, please explain for us why there are a thousand people in Niger and whether this whole incident that took place um, makes any sense to you. Uh, I believe there are a thousand, a thousand servicemen and women in Niger because... Because uh, there's some bad they, hombres there, David. <laughs> because what we are fighting against is the, the ability of terrorist organizations to prey on societies that lack governance sufficient to control their territory. Um, and we are trying to train and assist local forces from friendly countries to have the capacity to to fight these battles before they burgeon into what Afghanistan became in the late 1990s. So um, I, I don't actually share the alarm that we're doing this. It seems to me that in these cases, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that ounce of prevention is not only us watching what's happening and lead-turning bad events by being involved ourselves and by helping train and equip uh, others to handle their own problems to a greater degree than us having to come in once it's a big problem. I, I like the preventative approach to dealing with the spread of terrorists and terrorist-related organizations. But at the core of that, and here's the problem with what we're doing, at the core of that is governance. And we are doing nothing to improve the quality of governance in these places. We have a militarized strategy. And it reminds me so much of the School of the Americas approach to building capacity in Latin America in the 1980s which is we are only investing in improving military capacity, and that's going to tilt the equilibrium in all of these countries towards the military and their domestic politics. And that is actually really bad for us and bad for those countries. Rosa, she obviously isn't reading the news because the chief of staff to the president of the United States, who, in case you didn't know this, is a retired four-star Marine general, said that we were going into this country in order to help them get back human rights. Right. Well, that has been a major priority of the Trump administration. Um, um, so, uh, <laughs> well said, Rosa. Well said. Um, no, I mean, I think that, you know, if you want to talk about crises in civil military relations, um, there are a lot of countries uh, in which it would be accurate to to say that, or, or in some cases, that has been the status quo for for decades. I, I think so. I'm going to make a you know wild overgeneralization, um, but but not a wholly in, inaccurate generalization by saying that in much of Africa, uh, European colonial regimes focused on building up the military far more than they focused on building up uh, civilian government institutions uh, because their emphasis was initially on on 
preservation of order and stability in order to ensure uh, the ability to exploit the natural resources of those countries as effectively as possible without having to deal with, you know, pesky uprisings of the natives. Um, and the legacy of that when uh, the era of colonial colonialization ended and many African countries gained independence was that you had extremely well-trained, well-equipped militaries that were far more uh, capable of doing their job than the civilian government entities were of doing their job. So you had these kind of lopsided arrangements that were legacies of colonialism uh, that have been really devastating for for those societies, uh, for many of those societies. And, you know, I, I think that the the anxiety that Corey just articulated, which is that while while in principle there's there's nothing wrong and there's much that is right about saying huh you know if we can use our military uh capabilities to help prevent terrorism to help prevent other forms of instability and so on in Niger or or country X or country Y isn't that a good thing you know that's that's not a bad thing but the anxiety that Corey articulated of do we end up with, despite our good intentions, uh, further buttressing the military at the expense of other institutions in a way that in the longer run is just going to cause more problems. I think that there are, there are lots of reasons to think that that is precisely what we are doing despite having very, very good intentions. Ed, as you look at this, perhaps you're having the same thought that I am, which was one year ago today, we thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and she didn't. And what a mess! Um, yeah, I, I sort of tend to think it would be a mess if she was president too, not because she was president, but because the kinds of problems. I mean, North Korea, for example, people were warning all through last year, quite correctly, having observed Kim Jong Un's um, various um, preparations and timetables, and the. Um, increasing sort of range of his uh, missile tests and the increasing kilotonnage of his nuclear tests, that this was going to really be crisis year, whoever was president, just to give one example. Um, I think we knew that Afghanistan was going to be a mess without any obvious solution, whoever was whoever was president. I think we, we knew the same of Syria. We probably couldn't have anticipated that ISIS would be uh, be pretty nearly defeated, fully defeated, at least in sort of geographic terms by this point in the next presidency. But I'm not sure there's sort of any strong grounds for believing um, it would have happened slower or quicker had Hillary Clinton been president. So, you know, we can, sitting in Washington, uh, you know, perhaps overinterpret some of the effects of who is president. Uh, the, the, the world is is in a complicated, um, strategically quite confusing, um, the problems at least, um, uh, condition. And, uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't wish it on any president. The fact that we have a president who is barely aware of, of many of these things is very disturbing. And it's likely to compound some of these problems over the longer term. That will become easier to assess over time. But Hillary Clinton, you know, dodged a bullet. This, this, this is a, this is a presidency that, um, that, that I, I, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Uh, well, this is a very interesting kind of bombshelly place to end this whole thing. If we can get the opinions of Corey and Rosa on this, do you think that if 
Hillary Clinton were president, we'd be, as Ed suggests, in roughly the same place in most of the places that he mentioned as we are with Trump? No. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. And that was great. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps well, you'd like to Structurally, I mean, Ed is right that structurally there are some of the problems confronting, many of the problems confronting the United States would be there regardless of who is in the White House. Uh, we would, for instance, I'm quite certain, still have a thousand troops in Niger under Hillary Clinton. Uh, the odds that you know something bad would happen to some of them are just as high. You know, that's not a function of Trump. None of that is a function of Trump. Um, North Korea would still probably be testing us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that that being said, you know, I, I do think that what's different and worse about Trump. Uh, number one, on the domestic front, obviously, Trump is is actively and aggressively trying to dismantle. Uh, some of the you know core protections for civil rights in this country, uh, and I think his his uh, extremely xenophobic uh, and intolerant approach to immigrants and refugees is is not something we would be seeing with with Hillary Clinton. Um, I also think that the, the big difference in terms of international relations is is just the level of <laughs> uh, combination of bellicose rhetoric with extremely erratic and inconsistent approaches to policy. And I think with Clinton, while the the deep issues facing the global community would all be the same, there would be less reason to fear uh, driving away allies and partners and less reason to fear, uh, you know, a, a president who has a bad day and decides to start a nuclear war. Which... Uh, just be clear, I agree with you fully. These are the th problems that will compound yeah. themselves over time. But, that, but that's what a distinction I was trying to make. You're absolutely right, though. Well, Corey, you're in London. So I, I would like you to have this opportunity to say, Ed Luce is wet on Trump. <laughs> <laughs> is, is he wet on Trump? You know, in my conversations here today in London, I have learned so many magnificent British words that that reminded <laughs> me of the paucity and lack of imagination we Americans bring to our own vocabulary. So my hat is off to Ed Luce and his countrywomen and countrymen for their contributions to what is claimed as a common language that we speak. Are you going to um, share with us your favorite? Yeah, I want a couple of, yeah, I know what couple of examples. Are. Examples of British slang. <laughs> Moreover... Substantively, I cannot improve on Rosa's explanation of what would be different under a Clinton presidency. Um, so I will give you my favorite Britishism, which is uh, the word shirty. Shirty, yes. Shirty. He, he got a bit shirty about shirty that. Today. Yes, indeed. Exactly. And and I see the I see the forum to Ed to explain to are totally nerdy deep state listeners who might not yet have already madly scrambled for their phones and Googled it. Shirt, oh, shirty is go, hot under yeah, the collar. You, use it in a sentence that describes someone in the Trump Hot under the collar. Well, I, I first of all, just want to underline, I do think Trump is a nincompoop. Um, you know, and that's, I don't want to be any confusion on that point. But um, we have that word yeah, already. I know. Ed. So I, I get with the British one. Okay, calm so. down. Pull your, pull your punches a little. This is a family show here. <laughs> Shirty means just, you know, um, tendency to, to, to aggro. Um, to, to, you know, fly off the handle pretty quickly. Bad mood. Um, <laughs> short temper. 
shirty. And I think it's the image of ripping your shirt off. You're so angry. Almost sort of think of the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, maybe we can also begin our next episode with a British uh, slang term of the day. And and we can elucidate it before we turn to any other issues. I I want to nominate one. Okay, well, why don't we save that for the next episode since we're out of time (laughs) on this episode. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, London-based Corey Shockey. And uh, everybody, please join us again soon where you'll hear more useful Britishisms uh, from some British people and then some other people from other places. Um, And that will make you sound smarter. Uh, Of course, listening to Deep State Radio also makes you sound smarter. Um, So come back soon and tell your friends to join you. Thanks, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.